Our scripture today is from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned, away, turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you an overflowing blessing. I will rebuke the locusts for you so that it will not destroy the produce of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not be barren, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will count you happy, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What is it that we need to worship? What's required? What's necessary to make a moment, an hour, a time in the sanctuary or sitting with your computer or tablet at home? What's needed to make it more than just an hour, but to make it worship? One of the really wonderful things about my time in seminary at the great Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, great best seminary, best, was uh, one of the great things about it, though, was I got to see worship, that question answered what makes for worship, I got to see it answered in a dozen different ways. The student body was so diverse, and the director of the chapel made sure that throughout the year that we got to experience worship in all kinds of different styles. For instance, the Episcopalians were the ones that taught me about incense. Whenever the chapel was turned over to the Episcopal Studies Department, they would create the worship in the, the biggest, the fullest, the highest liturgical way that they could. We did sometimes call it smells and bells worship, but <laughs> that didn't mean we didn't like it. <clears throat> I, I really loved seeing one of our professors, who was also an ordained Episcopal priest, come down the aisle dressed in a cassock and a stole and a chasuble and who knows what else. He had just mounds and mounds of cloth on and it would swish as he sway and sway as he walked. And in his hands, he always had the thurible, which is this golden box on a long golden chain. And inside the box are, are uh, coals that are smoldering, that are smoking. And he'd swing it from side to side as he walked, filling the air with the sweet, perfumed smoke coming from the incense on the coals. He would go up to the altar and he would swing the thurible all around it so that so the smoke would fill the altar. And uh, we could hear that clink, clink, clink of the thurible as he swung it. And it didn't matter where you were sitting in that room. Before long, you could smell the incense. The very fragrance of worship would be in your nose. There's something about smelling worship, about having all five of your senses come alive in the sanctuary that you will not soon forget. Or then there were the days when the black Baptists had a chance to lead, and I learned about praise in a way that I never had before. One of my classmates was a tremendous musician, and while he 
he was at Candler, he was charged with directing the gospel choir. And when they would sing, the whole room would fill up with praise. The congregation couldn't stay seated as the choir was up front swaying and clapping and singing their song from memory. And, and they had this code worked out, I think with hand signals from the director, so that they could move as he was uh, led by the Spirit from the chorus to a verse to a verse to the chorus to the coda. I, I don't know quite how they did it, but they could move as one body as he was led by the Spirit. And on more than one occasion, the director himself got so worked up, so full of the Spirit, so overcome with praise that he had to run around the chapel. Literally, he took a lap around the sanctuary, his knees high, his hands up, his whole body just full of the Spirit. Now, you can imagine the first time I saw this as a Methodist Midwestern white girl. <laughs> I was like, is he okay? Is he really allowed to run around the sanctuary? Turns out it's not that unusual in the black church. Now I know. What John Hewitt's not here today, otherwise I'd say he could take a lap anytime he wanted to, but when the choir gets back. But what does it look like to worship? Now, both those kinds of worship I experienced in seminary would be pretty surprising to someone who was used to thinking about worship in the temple in Jerusalem. I sort of doubt you've thought much about this kind of worship because I really doubt that you've spent a lot of time lately in the books of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. But if you wanted to, today after lunch, watching some football, wanted to dive into either one of those books, what you would find there are really detailed instructions about how to worship God, how to make an offering to God. You would find out that for the ancient Israelites, worship was pretty much about the offering. And so you'd find instructions about the grain offering, the vegetable offering, the fruit offering. And most importantly, you would find instructions about how to offer the sacrifice of animals, what the cow or the dove or the lamb needs to look like when you take it to the temple in Jerusalem and how the priest should slaughter it and what should happen to the meat. And most importantly, how the blood of the animal should be poured out on the altar. The instructions are detailed because this was really important. When there was a temple standing there in the sanctuary, or standing there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the daily sacrifice of animals and grain were centrally important to what it meant for people to be faithful and the nation to be faithful. It seems weird to us, but these offerings were a sign of reverence to God, God who was king, and, and they were a giving back of life to the one who made life. They were an act of service, an act of devotion, a way to express loyalty and love to the one who had entrusted us with the animals or the grain in the first place. They were a way to recognize the majesty and the power of God. So that makes sense theologically, but it's still kind of hard for us to imagine calling that worship, right? I mean, we would read about uh, animal sacrifice and probably be confused or mortified. And if I would seriously suggest pouring the blood of a lamb on our altar as the best way to worship God, somebody would be calling the bishop before worship was even over. But there is actually something that ties together that form of worship with the Episcopalians and the Black Gospel Choir that I experienced at seminary, as well as the worship that we do right here at St. Paul's in each and every week. In all those cases, People show up to give something, to offer something, to bring an offering. This was the fundamental concern of the scripture that Mark just read for us from the prophet Malachi. 
Now, Malachi is a word that means messenger, and it's a small book toward the end of the Old Testament. might not be one that you're super familiar with. He's one of what we call the minor prophets. Minor because they were short books, not because they were unimportant. And Malachi was writing to the people of Jerusalem after they had returned from their exile in Babylonia. They had done a whole lot to rebuild their city. They had rebuilt their temple. They had rebuilt the wall around their city. It looked like things were back to normal, but Malachi was really worried about the state of the people's worship. He felt like they were neglecting God. After all the turmoil that they had been through, they just had not come back fully to the presence and the power of God. So he implores them, return to the Lord, return to the Lord. And a key part of that return is he wants them to restore their connection to God through their offerings. Because to Malachi, to worship God means to give something, to give an offering, whether that's the fruit of our labor or coming and giving our own selves. We are the givers and God is the receiver. That's what it means for Malachi to worship. I want you to hold on to that for just a moment. Worship is the act of giving, not the act of getting. To me, this seems pretty opposite of the way that we normally talk about worship today. Think about it. How many times have you said something like this? You know, I really got something out of that worship service today. I hope you say that a lot, actually. <laughs> or, I come to worship to get filled up. Or maybe you've said, I just really don't get anything out of her preaching. I hope you don't say that very often. But we talk about worship in terms of what we get, about what we take away. I showed up to get something, and I judge the experience on what I am given. Even if it's good things, like I'm given a renewed sense of hope, or I'm given a feeling of gratitude, or I'm given a piece of inspiration, or I'm given a nugget that I can chew on for the week. Now, I'm not saying that those are bad things, or that's a terrible way to look at worship. I've done it a million times myself. But we have to realize that for Malachi, and for pretty much the whole Old Testament, worship is not, first of all, about what people get— it is about what people give. It's about what people give. For the prophet and for others, they are not afraid to ask God for things. They certainly come with their prayers of petition and trusting that God will fulfill their needs. In fact, that promise was present in our scripture reading too. Did you hear it? This vision of abundance that the prophet lays out for the people. God says, see if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down an overflowing blessing. I will rebuke the locust for you, so it will not destroy the produce of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not be barren. Then the nations will count you happy, for you shall be a land of delight. So the prophet's saying God will be trustworthy. God is going to give and give in abundance, give even more than you can imagine. But first, first Malachi is concerned with what the people bring, what the people themselves give to God. So I wonder, reading the scripture and others like it, I wonder, what would it be like for us to come to church on Sunday with the idea that first and foremost, we are here to make an offering? What would we need to do if our first movement was to come to honor God by what we give? How would it change things if, if our attitude was that our first business here was to sit in awe of God and God's majesty and give ourselves in response to that awesomeness of God. Confident in the mercy and the love of God. The mercy and love that we don't need to earn. We have what we need. What if we showed up to worship to give and then to give? 
to give things like our service and our prayer and our song and our presence and our money. Now, it might be a little hard to make that kind of shift. I mean, there's a challenge for me even to think about that because I think about worship oftentimes of what, in terms of what you get. I think about it that way. I, I want you to leave here saying, I got something. I got something out of this hour. But the scripture's really challenging us to think about worship as an act of devotion of giving. And I think that that leads us down pathways of, of healthy attitudes toward all kinds of things, including stewardship and generosity. Now, you might have read somewhere that when people are asked why they don't like church, why they don't like coming to church, invariably the top two reasons are churches are full of hypocritical people and they talk too much about money. Now, I don't really have anything to say about hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. It's true. I don't mean that in a bad way. I love you all, but we just are because we talk about love all the time and then we fail over and over again to love one, one another perfectly. It's true. So guess what? We're just going to keep talking about love until we can grow into it. We're all going on to perfection. So we're going to keep talking about that. But the money thing, the money thing I think is actually pretty unfair for people outside the church who don't want to come to church to complain about because we talk about money. Of course we do, but I don't think we do that too much. I think any talk about money is too much talk about money for people who don't want to come to church. But we talk about money because money matters. How we spend our money as people of faith matters. And I think it gets listed as one of those top things that's wrong with church because people don't like to be told what to do with their money. They just don't like it. So guess what? I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money because I know people don't like it. Even as we prepare in the next couple weeks for our annual stewardship commitment Sunday, I am not going to tell you what to do with your money. I am going to take a moment today to tell you what I do with mine. I'm going to tell you what Matt and I do with some of our money. Because in two weeks, the finance committee is going to ask you to consider making a financial commitment to the church for the year ahead, for 2021. And I just want you to know that I'm committed. Matt and I are committed. We are committed. Now, John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, he once said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So just know that I am nowhere close to Wesley-style generosity, because he really did give away just about everything he could. He lived so simply, and he died very poor. So I don't quite make it to the Wesley approach, but I do instead take an Old Testament approach, which is to base my giving around the gifts of a tithe, of a tithe. This is just a standard answer in the Old Testament about what is healthy to give to God. We heard it referenced in the scripture from Malachi. It's just the standard answer about a way to give to God and bless others, a tithe, which means 10%. For the people to whom Malachi was writing, that was pretty complicated for them because they had to figure out how many baskets of grain meant a tithe. Matt and I, we do not talk about baskets of grain. We don't worry about that. Instead, we look at the direct deposits that go into our checking account. And, uh, but it's all the same, really, baskets of grain, deposits in our checking account. So we take our paychecks and we divide by 10. Nine-tenths of that we keep for ourselves. 90% for us to pay our bills, to save for the future, to have fun. 90% for us. The other 10% we give away. That's where we start. That's our baseline. 10% for the work of God through the church, both to help the church run and to bless other people through the church's generosity with food or diapers or disaster relief or whatever good the church is up to. 
10% for the good of others, 90% for us. Now, 10% is what Leviticus and Deuteronomy prescribe. We just see it all the way through the Old Testament. It's what Jesus himself, we can assume, what Jesus himself did. Now, we can have conversations if you really want to about is that pre-tax or post-tax? Is that before contributions for health insurance and retirement savings? Okay, I don't really care about all that. You figure out what works for you. I do know that a tithe, 10% of our resources, is before our car payment and before our grocery bill. And it's just a baseline. It's a place to start. It's biblical, it's manageable, but it's not insignificant. I will say that as an adult, it took me a while to get there. And even now, I continue to pray that God will help us give away some of our resources, more and more of them, actually. I pray for that, that we could do that with freedom and with joy. I pray that God will keep me from holding on too tightly to the things that I have, and God will help me remember the power that comes when I show up with something to give. It is so powerful to show up with something to give. Now, St. Paul's, I know that some of you here, some families give a tithe, some even more than a tithe, and I'm really grateful for your generosity, just like I'm grateful for everyone's generosity here at the church, generosity to our common mission. I also know that we have a lot of families here who are very far away from giving 10% of their income, and if you would somehow try to do that quickly in 2021, that it would be an impossible change in your household budget. I get it. So this week, or next week, what I want to ask you to do is to take a moment to reflect on your worship as an offering and what it means for you to show up to St. Paul's with something to give. Remembering that the Bible orients us toward that. The Bible asks us to think about giving some of our stuff to others to bless them. And the Bible promises us that that is a healthy way for us to live, a way for us to honor God, a way for us to move toward holiness in response to God's love for us. So I want to ask you to take a minute this week or next week to sit down and actually figure out what percentage of your income you gave away in the last year or are on track to give away in 2020. Not just a dollar amount, but look at the percentage of your total income. And if it comes out to half a percent, that's great. That's a place to start. Think about what it might mean for you in 2021 to move toward 1%. But with that idea of 10% in mind as an ultimate goal, what would it take for you to move from half a percent to 1%? Or maybe you're at 2%. That's kind of the average around the country. You can see people in church give away about 2% of their income. So what would it be like for you to take that step to 3%? And so on. If you're a family that's been giving away 10% for a long time, I want to ask you to think and pray about what would it mean to take the next step to move to 11 or 12 or 14%? Offering that as your offering to God. Now, I realize that I'm preaching this sermon in the middle of a global pandemic. You didn't need me to tell you that, did you? You knew that already. So much of our world feels upside down. So let me just say, if you are one of the 50% of American families who have experienced economic disruption because of COVID, this may not be the year for you to grow in your giving uh, percentage-wise because you're maybe just barely hanging on. If that's you, know that we love you, we support you, and if there's a way that we at the church can help you, I, I pray that you will let me know. 
But if you are part of the 50% of American families who are financially stable, even through this tumultuous time, now is the moment for us to lean into our generosity and fill up the storehouses of God like Malachi asks. Now is a moment for us to bring our offering with joy and trust that God will bless others through it. When we show up to worship, it matters very little what we wear, what kinds of songs we sing, what kind of instruments we use, how much we dance, how loud we will pray, how many times we run around the sanctuary. <laughs> it doesn't matter. What matters is that we show up for worship ready to offer ourselves, our whole selves to God, offering our lives, offering our resources to this one who made us, who loves us, and who saves us. When we worship, may we show up ready to encounter the risen Christ and trust him with our lives. May God bless us and this congregation. Amen.